Second Peter. So still some more Peter to go around. And uh, we're going to be kind of, we're going to stay in this same series. And not just because we didn't want to order a new poster, I promise. I thought about like just writing a two on the poster outside, but that would be even extra lazy. So we are in, in a different book, but the series is going to be the same. And our, our series is called Standing Out in a Foreign World. And this same topic is going to be here in this letter, but in a very different way. They're, the two letters are, are completely different in their writing style, and it's even caused controversy to, about whether or not Peter's even the one who wrote it. But I think as we go through the letter, we see really clearly that there are just things in it that only Peter would have been able to write, at least with any uh, sincerity. And so we'll see there's a truth from Peter, and I think he even offers some signatures in the way that he writes that is quite unique to him. So it's very different from 1 Peter, but it does stick with this key theme, or we can definitely tie it into this, that we are... We're in a foreign world here, right? We're citizens of heaven. We belong to God. We're children of God through Jesus Christ. This is not our final home. This isn't where we end. This isn't our end game. We have something that we're looking forward to, and that's where we're headed. That's where we belong, and we belong there because of our relationship to God through Christ. And so we want to keep this in mind that when we're in this world, we are foreigners here, and how should our lives Look, how should we interact with the people around us? How should our lives be a demonstration of who we really are? And that's going to be also here in 2 Peter. And we're going to find that the theme is similar, but from a very different angle. The focuses here are going to be a lot on our growth as Christians and seeing real change happen in our lives, that we're meant to be changing, and that our source of strength And our source of change and transformation is the grace of God. That we are being transformed by the grace of God and through the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, and through Jesus Christ and our relationship to Him. And this empowerment that we receive, we find deeply rooted in the Word of God. He's going to talk a lot about the Bible and the importance of Scripture and its authenticity and the way that it can speak into our lives. And a key element of chapter 2 is going to be how we are to stand up for the truth. To stand up for the truth against people who would manipulate it or distort it and, or give false truth. He's going to go a lot, kind of a lot, very passionately on false teachers and the danger of false teachers. And so we see this idea of growth, we see this idea of, of transformation, but also not not just so that we feel better about ourselves, but that we can stand firm in what we believe, that we can know what we know through the Holy Spirit, through Christ, through God, who's revealed it to us, so that we would stand firm against also those who would manipulate or distort that truth. But we'll get into that into chapter 2. Got a few weeks before we get there. No worries. And so we'll see that as a key element, and also even when we stand in opposition, which we also saw a lot in in, uh, 1 Peter, Uh, but in a bit of a different angle. And I believe this will be a challenging letter for us to go through. I I found it uh, much, in some sections, much more challenging than 1 Peter, which was also quite a challenging letter to go through. But I also know that this letter will deepen our reliance on Christ. 
and the Word of God especially, and the importance of those in our lives. It will prepare us and strengthen us to be a powerful voice of truth in our lives, in our situations, in our groups, in our city, in our communities, and in this time that we have as foreigners here. So let's read the text that we're going to go through today. We're going to go through chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. So if you have a Bible, you can read along with me. I think it's going to be behind me as well. Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who through the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ have received a faith as precious as ours. Grace and peace be yours in abundance through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. His divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. Through these, he has given us his very great and precious promises, so that through them you may participate in the divine nature, having escaped the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. Let's pray before we get into this. Lord, we thank you so much for this word. We thank you for this, this your scripture, your word, your divine, holy word that we can read today, be encouraged, be transformed by, be prepared in. And I pray, Father, that each and every one of us would have our hearts open to hear what you would have to say through this message today. And you would give me a soft heart to your spirit to speak only your truth and to hear clearly what you would have to say to each and every one of us. In Jesus' name, amen. So, Something I like to do when we get into a new letter is take just a little bit of a moment to give a bit of background. I'm not going to do anything crazy because we'll kind of maybe touch on this in and out as we go through the letter uh, when it's a little, a little bit more, yeah, makes more sense within the text that we're looking at. But just a little bit of the overview background. Uh, it's, we don't know exactly when this was written as far as to the date, to the month, but we can pinpoint it to a fairly small window. It would have been written between 64 and 67 AD. This was towards the end of the reign of Nero. This would have been he either in the midst of or at least coming into the height of the persecution of the Christians when they were being burned in the streets. This means that this would have been a couple of years, so it's, there's not a huge gap between First and Second Peter, but clearly a lot will have happened as we'll see the context is kind of shifted as far as what he's focusing on uh, from 1 Peter. Uh, the letter is not addressed to anyone in particular like we see in 1 Peter where he says, you know, to these churches and uh, these various er areas of uh, what is modern-day Turkey now. But uh, in this letter, though, he does say, you know, that I'm writing to you again. This is my second letter. And so I think we can safely conclude that he's probably writing to the same people, that this letter would have been distributed to the same group uh, in what is now modern-day Turkey. So it's a really large area. This would have gone to a lot of different churches. And this is important because we can see that they would have, they would have had to wait, waited a little while, but it would, they would have also had this kind of foundation of the first letter from Peter that we also have, right? So for those of you who've been here from the beginning of this series... 
And so we didn't have to wait as long, but we kind of can go right into this building on the foundation of 1 Peter into 2 Peter. And there's something special in this letter that I think is worth noting before we get into it. It will help us in digesting it. It will help us to kind of have our eyes open a little bit, I think, wider, our ears open a bit wider to uh, what this really has to say to us. And that is that at this time, Peter would have been in prison uh, in Rome. He would have been in Rome most likely imprisoned at this point when this letter was written. And uh, we know that he was about to face death, and he knew it. In verse or chapter 1, verse 14, he says, Because I know that I will soon put, a, put it aside, and he's talking about the tent of this body, which is a really cool way of talking about the body. We'll get into that also later. Um, as our Lord Jesus Christ has made clear to me. So basically he's saying, I know that I'm about to leave this tent of my body. I'm going home. I know that. Jesus has made it known to Peter. He doesn't have long left. He doesn't have much more time. He's going to be going home. And this letter is kind of, you, there's a, a, a certain sense of emotion that we can feel when we, especially when we take that into consideration. In the last chapter, we'll see a lot of, of joy in knowing what's awaiting us, what's awaiting him and what's awaiting us in the end, right? And this is going to be something that I, I think encourages us, that's something we're looking forward to. And he's going to really focus on the new heavens and the new earth is what he's going to talk about. So not just going to heaven, not just, you know, when we're absent from the body, we're present with the Father, as the Bible tells us, but beyond that into what when Jesus comes back and reigns on the earth and it's it's going to be some cool stuff and so there is some levels of encouragement as he's looking to the end of his days but there's definitely another side to this letter an urgency that is clearly throughout the text now imagine if you will that you know you're about to die you're about to be martyred you're in prison and you know Jesus has made it clear to you you're going to die your life will be taken from you. You don't know if it's going to be tomorrow, in a week, maybe a month, but you know it's coming soon. And you've devoted your life to following Jesus. You've devoted your life to seeing his church be built up, seeing the people of God be fed. And here you are facing the end of your life. And you have one last letter to write. What would you say? One letter to prepare the people, to lead and guide them long after you're gone. What would you put in that letter? You're probably not going to tell them about the weather in Rome. It's been cloudy, a bit rainy. You're not going to talk about that. You're going to get right down to the most important things you have to say. You're going to try and be purposeful in how you place every word, every phrase to give it as much, to put as much vital information into that letter as you can, knowing you don't have another chance. You're not going to get another opportunity to write a letter. This is his farewell discourse before he goes home. Peter knows this is his last chance to direct and to influence the churches to whom he's writing. And that includes us today. We know that this is his last word and warning, and there's a lot of warnings he's going to give us. So with this in mind, I think it's important that we 
Take this into consideration that we're on the lookout as we go through the text, closely examining this letter verse by verse, really looking at what he put in it, trying to soak in as much of the vital information as we can that was given to us through the Apostle Peter, the things that he found were worthy to be placed into his final letter, knowing it was his final letter, written to the churches then and again to us today. So let's get in before we run out of time, before we even start. Verse 1, let's just start with the very introduction. Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ. Now there are two things already I want us to note in this. First, in the way that he gives his name. So he says, Simon Peter, which is interesting. He doesn't do that in in the other letter, uh, that he calls himself Simon Peter. And of course, Simon is his given name. That's the name that he got at birth. And so yeah, Simon was the name he got at birth. Peter is the name that Jesus gave him. The rock. And I think this already right here gives us a bit of a taste of what he is going to be focusing on. Because in that simple act of giving both names, we see this object of transition, of change, of transformation. He's no longer Simon, now he's Peter. Now, he still is within the tent of this body. He is still Simon, yet he's also Peter. And in our relationship to God, through the grace of the transforming grace that we receive through Christ, we are made new. We don't maybe get physical name changes, unless Jesus tells you to change your name. You didn't tell me to change my name. But we do get a new identity. We're no, we're no longer just who we were at birth. We're made new. We are new creatures in Christ Jesus. And so even in his name, we see a depiction of where this letter is going to be going. He's going to focus a lot on that, especially in chapter 1. The second is the title that he gives himself. Now, typically when somebody of great authority introduces themselves, they usually start with their place of highest authority and position, whatever that might be, their greater title. An apostle is a really high honor. It was not just, not just anybody is an apostle. An apostle is chosen by Jesus Christ himself. They were all eyewitnesses of Jesus after he rose from the dead. And his words as an apostle of Christ hold the authority of Jesus himself. So we're going to read this letter with that in mind, that these are as the words of Christ, because this is from an apostle one chosen and given the authority of Jesus Christ. So it's from Jesus through the apostle. But why does he start with servant? It's an evidence of the revelation and wisdom that he has in relation to his relationship that he's received and understanding of it to Jesus Christ. Because Jesus served, right? Peter knew that well. Remember, he freaked out when Jesus washed his feet. He's like, no, you can't do it. They're too dirty. And yet he learned through that experience what Jesus came to do, to serve. And when we know Jesus and who he really is, that he's Lord and God and Savior, and he washes your feet, there's no other view to take than that of a servant. If my master would be so humble to me as to wash my feet 
as to serve me, I will call myself his slave, which is actually the real or a closer translation to that word servant. It means bond slave or bond servant or slave, somebody who's indebted. Christ is a servant to us, and so we too should call ourselves into servitude. We see this right in his introduction. Let's read the rest of verse 1. To those who through the righteousness of God and save through through the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ have received a faith as precious as ours. I don't know if you noticed there he just threw in the deity of Jesus. There's a lot of things that we I have to we won't even have time to get into, but he calls him our God and our Savior. God humbled himself to the level of humanity in order to save us. We see this just thrown in there so nonchalantly. I really want to look at this word precious. And this is where I, what I, one of the first things I really note as a signature. We also saw this word in 1 Peter. He refers to the preciousness of God or as something that we seek, as something that is precious to us. And it does feel like something significant or as a signature to him because it's not something often used. Not many of the writers use that word and certainly never in this context except Peter, which is always a bit ironic to me because he was a kind of a burly, you know, man's man fisherman. I just picture him with a beard. I assume he had a beard. Just, you know, big grizzly man. And he's like, it's precious to me. It's so out of context. And yet, so important that he saw it as something precious, something delicate, something important, something to treasure. And he'll use this again even later. He uses it without reserve, without shame, when he's talking about his faith that he's been given through Jesus Christ. He'll use it actually in verse 4. We'll look at it in just a moment. And he also confirms that they and we today, when we believe and follow Jesus, have received the same saving grace. Now that's really significant. This is an apostle talking. We have the same saving faith that Peter and the other apostles have received. The rock of the church, a leader, who walked and who walked and talked and ate with Jesus Christ personally. And yet we have received the same saving faith that he had through the righteous and perfect saving grace of Jesus Christ. I find that also encouraging and significant to note. That there is, he isn't above us in his, he's not saved plus. We're all equal. We're all brought into the same reliance on Jesus when we are saved by grace. We're united in this. We're united equally through our, the saving grace that God gives us in our faith. And it is precious. Worthy to be treasured and sought after. Is the faith that you've received as it says, through the righteousness 
of our God and Savior Jesus Christ something precious to you. If a burly fisherman can call it precious, we should too. We should seek to have it be something precious that grows ever more precious in our lives. Verse 2. Grace and peace be yours in abundance through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Now this may seem like a typical greeting. It's fairly common the way that it's played out in, uh, in most of the epistles. But there is a, a, one thing I find a bit significant in the way that he lays this out that could be easily overlooked. Keeping in mind, keeping in mind again that this is his final letter and knowing that it was his final letter. First he says, grace and peace be yours in abundance. Now grace is going to be a huge part of this letter all throughout, especially here in chapter 1. And last week we talked about grace, but just again to refresh your memory, grace, in a, a really condensed definition, is God's goodness, God's kindness, God's love, God's giving shown to us that is completely undeserved or unearned. Grace is the goodness of God we received that we did nothing to get. We did nothing to earn it. We can do nothing to earn it. We can do nothing to be good enough for God's grace. That's what grace is. It's His goodness shown to us when we didn't do anything to earn it. And grace is the foundation of the gospel. That Jesus died for us in payment for our sins and rose again on the third day and offers us eternal life and glory. So he paid the price, he suffered, and we're given freely the gift, the reward of salvation. That's what grace is. That's the foundation of the gospel. So understanding this must first really sink deep into our hearts. It's the beginning. It's the start. We have to get this. We have to understand grace. Grace comes first, and what it, when it really begins to take hold in our lives, when we really grasp grace, that I didn't do anything to deserve what Christ did for me, and I receive it, I thankfully receive what God is giving me. That's the thing. We tend to be reluctant. Oh, I don't deserve it. I didn't earn it. I I can't have all of God's love. I can't have all of his grace. I can't have all of his goodness, his kindness to me. But when we really open our, our, ourself up and say, no, I receive the goodness of God because I know that what Christ did was enough, when we really grasp that concept, then peace always follows in abundance, in equal abundance to our understanding of the grace of God. Grace and peace be yours in abundance. Get grace, and you will receive peace in the same abundance, in the same level as you understand that grace. This, the importance of this is really clear in this letter because he mirrors this at the very last verse of the letter in, in uh, verse 3, 18, chapter 3, verse 18. But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So here, instead of let it abound within you. He's saying, grow in it. You need to grow in grace. You need to see grace be something that is continually growing within you, multiplying within you, that it would be something that's abounding in our lives. 
And it will when we're following Christ and seeking after Him. It's more than a simple grasp of Christianity. It's not, okay, I'm going to go to church, I'm going to hang out with the, these Christian people, I'm going to not do this and this and this, and I'm going to do this and this and this, and then I'm Christian. I'm Christian. It's not, it's not where it is. It's, it, it's grace. It's understanding this grace and receiving that grace is the beginning of it. It's the key force and the foundation on which our faith and later our lives and all aspects of our Christianity are built. It starts there. It's the foundation. So if we want to have peace, and most of us would say, yeah, I want to have peace. We want to have effective ministries that God calls us to. We want to have assurance and be free from doubt. Seek to know the grace of God first. That you are saved by grace through faith. And that the work of the cross is finished. It's complete. You didn't do anything to get it. You didn't do anything to earn it. It's done. Receive it. Receive it through the work of the cross and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Let's go into verse 3. His divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. Now, have you noticed a reoccurring theme in the last few verses? In verse 2 and also in verse 3.18, the last verse. Here in verse 3, and we'll hear it many more times. I'm referring to knowledge. He uses the word knowledge. We almost don't see that word at all in 1 Peter. We don't see it actually quite that so often in most of the epistles as, and nowhere as much as or as concentrated as we do here in 2 Peter. Knowledge. In fact, it's mentioned over, or exactly, 18 times within this letter of only three chapters. Knowledge. What is the knowledge of God and of our Lord Jesus Christ? What are we talking about? Can knowledge really save us? As he's talking about our, our salvation, and he uses this word knowledge, can knowledge save us? Well, of course not. Knowledge in itself cannot save us. Right, James 2.19, a really good verse for this. It says, you believe, or you could say, you know, you know that there is one God, good. Even the demons believe that. Even the demons know that, and they shudder. So to know something, to know God exists, or to have a knowledge about God is not enough to confirm our salvation. Jesus also says to the Pharisees on this, in his long list of woes to them in Luke chapter 11, I'll look at uh, verse 52, Luke eleven fifty-two. 52. Woe to you, experts in the law, because you have taken away the key to knowledge. So they're experts. They knew the word of God. They knew the law. They knew everything about God. And yet they missed the key to knowledge. They missed something. Now, there's a lot we could get into on what they missed, but I think a really cool key we can see, looking also at Luke 11, and I won't read this, I'll just tell you what, what he says. In, in verse 39, he talks about how they're like a cup that has been washed, polished, clean on the outside, but on the inside is filthy. This is the key difference. Grace brings a change to the inside first. And then the outside will follow. 
grace starts on the inside. And then the outside will follow. And sometimes not nearly as fast or as quickly as, or as efficiently as we would like. But it's, grace starts on the inside. That's the key to knowledge. It's the grace, the knowledge of the grace of God. Let's reread verse 3 with this in mind. His divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life through our knowledge of Him who called us by His own glory and goodness. Now we all have a need to see a change in our life. We need to see change. To see the cup shine both inside and out, right? That's what we want. We want to be good, godly Christians. We want to live well. And here it says that you have everything you need. You have everything you need to live a godly life, to be that clean cup inside and out. But how? Through our knowledge And then it gets, okay, knowledge, what are we talking about? We can't be saved through knowledge, but it's not our knowledge about him. It's our knowledge of him. He's called us by his own glory and goodness, a.k.a. we could say that's his power and his grace. It's talking about his power and his grace that we've received. But if we get back to this knowledge, it is not... Again, it's not the knowing about Jesus, who he was, when he lived, intellectually understanding the Bible. It's not knowing about Jesus that gives us all that we need for a changed life. That's not where we get all we need. It's to know him, to know him personally. Now, I think about today With the internet, you can go online and find out a lot of information about almost anybody, especially somebody who's well-known. Jesus, even if you aren't a Christian, would historically pretty famous guy. You know, a lot of things, a lot of things written about him. And if we look at somebody famous today, think of a celebrity, whoever your favorite celebrity is, favorite actor, sports, whatever it might be, somebody who's well-known. You can go online and read all kinds of articles about them, find out all about their lives, probably find out where they grew up, their favorite ice cream, I don't know. You could probably find out a lot of like really random things. But though you can know a lot about them, you wouldn't really know them. You wouldn't know them at all. Not really. I think of my wife... I know my wife. I know her better than anyone else. She knows me better than anyone else. Her fears, her joys, her loves, her hates, the intricacies of her personality. And I know, I feel like I know so much about her. We've, we've, been, we've known each other for eight years. I, I feel like there's so many things that I've learned about her. And yet... All the time, I'm surprised. I continue, our relationship continues to grow and to deepen. And I continue to know more and more about her. So do you know about Jesus? Or do you really know him? Do you know him? Not just about. Do you know him? I believe that we can know him. I believe we will and should know Jesus better than any other person in our lives. 
more intimately than anybody in our lives, any relationship, any friend. I know him better than I know my wife. I know him better than I know my wife. Better than any family or any friend that I've ever had, I know Christ in my life. And in that relationship, it just continues to go deeper and deeper and deeper. As I seek him, as I find that relationship, that grace I've received as something precious to me. Think about any relationship that, does, that, you, that has great value to you, whether it's a spouse, a really good friend, maybe a brother or sister, a, a parent. Those relationships, they, there's, there's something special. They, they grow. They deepen over time. That's what we want to have with Christ. We want to know him. And when we have someone that we care about, it's such a pleasure to get to know more about them. It's such a joy to learn something new about their character, to experience something new with them. Let's have that with Christ. Let's not just know about him. Let's know him. You might ask, well, how, how can you really know Jesus? How can you really know him better? What does that really look like practically? And I think there's no more important place to start than the Bible. And I really want to say this because we can tend to think that we need to separate this. Okay, the Bible is my intellectual understanding of Jesus. And when I'm praying or when I have like this, an experience or something like that, that's my relationship to Jesus. But you cannot separate the two. And there's nothing more concrete, nothing more permanent, nothing more trustworthy than to build that relationship with Christ through his own words, what he spoke, and he will speak to you through the word of God, through the Bible. Start there. Start at the word of God. Build your foundation there first. And if you feel like, hey, you know what? There's just nothing I can gain in my relationship with Jesus through the Bible. Please come talk to me. We'll pray for you. Or maybe you can just shed some of your wisdom to me because I haven't gotten there yet. The more I read it, the deeper and the more I see him. The more I see him in every part of the word of God. The Bible is not like the internet. It's not like a magazine about or an article about somebody. It's alive and active. It's inspired by the Spirit of God, as we'll see actually later in this chapter. And it speaks to us today. And if you want to know Christ more intimately, it's the best place to spend time with Him, is in the Word of God. And I think you'll see that more and more, there's through, there's, we can see this through two things, right? The first is... Or we see this grow within us in two things. One is to, through a desire to see him in the word of God. I want to grow my relationship with Christ, so I'm going to read the word of God. And I'm going to seek him out. I'm going to seek him out. And he speaks through us, through his word, in those experiences. And the other thing is through the revealing of the Holy Spirit, who opens our hearts, open our minds up to see Christ more clearly in the word of God in ways we didn't see him before or speaks through us in new ways that we didn't hear before. And for that, we can ask him. As we read, we can ask, please reveal yourself to me as I read your word. Let's go into verse 4. 
through these, so we're staying in line with everything, through these, he has given us his very great and precious promises. Let's talk about the word of God. So that through them you may participate in the divine nature, having escaped the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. So he's given us his very great and precious promises. This is, of course, again, this is talking about the word of God, the precious promises. He's talking about the Bible and the preciousest of promises that we have is our salvation itself, the grace that we've received through the cross. It's first and foremost the promise that we have through this grace shown to us, our salvation, that we belong to God through Christ. There's, there's no greater promise than that. But what's important here is that that's not, that's not the end. That's the beginning. Salvation is not the end, but the beginning when we grasp that promise, again, that foundation of grace, when we really get that, and it really is a foundation in our lives, don't stop there. Grow. Continue to grow. God's word is filled with, filled with very great and precious promises. It's not singular. There's not just that one promise of the grace that we have in salvation. There are, it is filled with promises. Promises that give life, give hope to us, that bring about change and transformation in us, that build us up and edify us in our times of doubt and fear. When we feel crushed, it lifts us out of a dark place. It is filled with very great and precious promises. And through them, through those great and precious promises, through them you may participate in the divine nature. It's real transformation. When we're standing on the promises of God, especially that one of grace and our salvation, our nature changes. It's divine nature. This is, first and foremost, eternal life, right? In our salvation, that we, we are no longer dead in our trespasses, we are brought into life and we are brought into life eternal. We will live with Christ for eternity. A divine nature that's beyond your human nature to live eternally, if you didn't know. But that's not, again, that's not the end result, that's just the beginning of something. So our nature doesn't just change in that we are now brought into in, into being an eternal, having an eternal nature that we will live eternally, but our every aspect of our nature changes. There are two key themes to this, or this is a key theme in this letter. Sorry, this is a key theme in this letter, and we'll see it again and again as we go through it. The inevitable transformation of the nature of those who follow Christ. You know, I'm somebody who likes to be outside. I like to go. And there's a forest near my house. It's one of my favorite places to go if I want to pray or just think. And something, I've been going to the same forest for now for like six years. And you see that it's changing. It's, it's always changing. It's always being transformed. Everything is always molding. You know, some trees get bigger. Some trees are no longer there. It's always changing. And we're compared often to trees throughout the word of God. And so I think it's a good analogy for us to take with us that in a forest, there is 
Two constant and distinct transformations always happening. Always. Everything that contains life within it is growing. Everything that contains life is growing. And everything that is dead inside is rotting and returning back to the earth. Which state are we moving toward? This is the assurance of our salvation. This is the foundation of our grace that we receive. What state are we moving toward? Rotting, decaying, or are we growing? Are we seeing that change? Are we taking hold of that we've been given everything we need to to live godly? Having escaped the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. It's interesting he uses desires because what what are desires? They're, They're deep within us. There's something way deep inside. It's, that's where it all begins. Before somebody does something, does something sinful, does something they know they shouldn't do, it starts with a desire they're leading into, they're succumbing to, they're following. It's the inmost part. It's the inside of the cup. So we want to see change happening in our lives, and we can tell by our desires. It's the beginning A tree that has no water, that loses its source of life, dies. And it may look okay on the outside for a while, but if it doesn't have nutrients, if it doesn't have a source that it's connected to, it will wither. And what's on the inside will be then seen on the outside. But when it has life within it, when it's connected to, when its roots go in deep, to a source of water, to a source of life. It grows, sometimes slowly, but it grows, continues to be transformed. And when we know Jesus, when we love him, when we treasure him, when he is our source of life, we will continue to grow and grow and grow. Day by day, year by year, again, very slowly at times, but we will see growth. If we only know about Jesus, we have no source of life feeding our souls. Our desires will not be for him, and our inner desire will always win, our selfish, easily corrupted desire, and it will rot our soul. We need to be connected to him, and it begins the foundation is in the understanding of the grace we've received. That it's all grace. We did nothing to earn it. So seek him in this. And seek him first in the word of God. Not to only intellectually feel that you can understand more about this character of Jesus, but that you would seek to know him, to love and to commune with him daily. It starts in the word, but don't stop there. Talk to him. Tell him about your life. Tell him about your doubts, your fears. Talk with him about everything. He already knows you're not going to surprise him. So tell him. Talk with him. Open your heart up to him. It has value. And this especially in connection when we understand him through the word of God, through his own words. Know him. 
Know him not as somebody who was, but as someone who is. He's risen. He's alive today. So when you read the Bible, this will be the homework for this week. When you read the Bible, a good place to start if you're trying to seek to understand Christ more and trying to connect with him more, trying to know him personally more, is the Gospels. The Gospels. Read his words, his own words. Read, which I would say all of the Bible, all, especially all the New Testament, is his words. But read, read, the, read the red letter Red letters, if you have a red letter edition. Read the Gospels. Start in the Gospels and go through them and really see how he lived, how he walked, how he dealt with situations, how he sought the Lord. He always went off. There were times where he said, I have to be, I need to go and and spend time in prayer. Look at how he lived. And when you seek him, seek him as something precious to you. And what I really want to encourage you guys with is that remember that the Word of God is filled with these precious promises. So when you're reading through the Bible, and I really encourage you to read through a book, it's, really encur- it's a good thing to read through a book. Sometimes we can have these moments where we fling open the Bible and just go, oh, I'm going to read this verse today. God can use that. I'm not saying God can't use that, but it can be really I think it can be valuable to you to understand it when you read through a book. Pick a book, read through it, seek the Lord, and take 15 minutes. This is your homework. Take 15 minutes, read whatever you read in 15 minutes. Maybe it's a a chapter, maybe it's the whole book. Depends on which book you're doing. Take your time, read it slowly, and then stop afterwards and say, okay, what were the precious promises in there? What were the promises that God has for me? What does that say about who I am? What does that say about who I am in Christ? What does that say about my relationship to Him? Find something that you can hold on to when you leave. I think often we read the Word of God because we we feel we need to read it, and then we walk away, and if somebody asks you, well, what did you read today? You'd be like, something in John? I don't know. We, We forget. And so take something with you when you read. Seek out those precious promises and hold on to them. I'll invite the band to come back up so we're prepared to close. And as you do, really seek him. Pray that through these precious promises, you would be just a little bit closer, just a little bit more transformed, a little bit more changed to be like him, to be like your Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. That we, when we introduce ourselves, would say, I am I'm a servant of Christ, as Peter was. Amen.